Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories at the Vatican. This week, we're following up on the Vatican's unprecedented McCarrick report and the waves that it's made in the U.S. and around the world. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from a sunny but rather cold Rome. Colleen? What is cold in Rome? (laughs) Well, it's about 19 degrees here. I don't don't quite know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's... uh, It's uh, it's 66 for us. That's what it is. So it's about the same in New Orleans and Rome. How are the COVID restrictions in Italy going? How's the scene look there? Well, the situation is parts of the country are under in the red zone under almost total lockdown. And some part, the, the area where we are in the region of Lazio and where Rome is, uh, we're still in the yellow zone, which is the more or less free zone. Uh, we've got about under 3,000 cases uh, a day. And in the country, we have thirty over 30,000, between thirty and 35,000 cases a day and about 500 deaths. It's insane to me how much higher it is than than it was in March. Yes, yes, it's it's got much higher. I mean, we're in the we're deep in the second wave and the question is have we peaked? Uh, some say we are we're peaking at this point. Uh, some say it will take another week, but that's where we are. We see that now for example in Rome all the pont Difficult universities, the Vatican universities, they're all doing distance learning, distance teaching. Right. There had been a lot of concern about, about the fact that these students were living and going to classes really close together. So it sounds like a, a prudent decision. Yes. And re- remember, we're still in the whole country also in Rome that uh, restaurants, bars, everything closed by six o'clock in the evening. And we have a curfew from 10 o'clock in the evening until five o'clock in the morning. And really, I can tell you the place is like a cemetery at that hour. Mm-hmm. That's so crazy. And I, I hope that you guys continue to stay safe. You know that here in the States, the spread is is quite uncontrolled. Well, we followed the states and we find that we're, we're really stunned by the numbers. Yeah. Yeah, me too. This long-awaited report admits that Pope John Paul II, who made McCarrick a, a cardinal and appointed him to Washington, D.C., knew about allegations of sexual misconduct, but chose to ignore them and to instead take McCarrick for his word. Let's get into our news for the week. Um, last week, we did a deep dive on the Vatican's report on former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick and how he was able to rise through the ranks of the church's hierarchy, even while there were a lot of rumors going around and even some allegations about him abusing priests and seminarians and, and rumors about him abusing minors. We have a deep dive episode, so we're not going to go through all the information from the report again. I will link to the deep dive in the show notes if our listeners want to listen to that. But let's talk about the impact that that report has now had around the world, because we talked last week a little bit about how this was a major, major step, and and now we're starting to see waves from it. So uh, let's start with the impact that there's been over here in the U.S., where McCarrick spent most of his career. Cherry, what stood out to you from this? Well, what is striking is that, uh, in fact, I, Colleen, I'm, I'm reading the report for the second time. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, well, I think it's important. This is the first time that the Vatican has really put out for public view the inner workings of how a bishop is appointed and how reports are dealt with of 
uh, allegations of abuse, etc. It, it is really a watershed in the history of the church. Uh, there's never been such a transparent disclosure on such questions. And uh, I was going back over it. The first thing that struck me in the mid, in the, in the second half of the 1980s, a mother who McCarrick used as a, in New York, he used to visit a family where there were several boys. And uh, the mother saw him one time, the way he was had one boy and one knee and one boy and the other knee and how he was dealing with them. Uh, and she was really shocked. And she made anonymous denunciation. And she was very angry. And uh, she tells the interviewer for the report that she, she was so angry. And uh, she wanted to go public at, in the 1990s, but the sons, one of the sons convinced her not. He said, well, we're now young men, and that, that is history. And it, for us, it wasn't sexual at the time. But I, I'm struck by the, the details that are in this report. And then the other thing that's striking is really the career of McCarrick. You see, all the countries he traveled, the number of times he met John Paul II, especially with whom he, he'd known since 1976, and his links with the American government or various, uh, um, uh, the administration of the time, and with top Vatican officials. He, he really was a high flyer in the biggest sense. So it's striking to see this man with such a career and yet having this other side of him hidden for so long and people being afraid to say anything. Well, and, you know, Jerry, people people being ignored or not being taken seriously like, like that mother you mentioned. Yes. Well, the problem at that time, and it wasn't just, just in the church, Colleen, it was right across in companies, in, in, in government, in, in, in institutions, anonymous denunciations, anonymous letters tended to end up in the dustbin. Now, Pope Francis has changed all this. In future, anonymous denunciations will have to be uh, looked at and, and, and examined carefully. And I, I think this is a major shift in, in terms of the internal church operation, because it's not just in question of the abuse, but also when a candidate comes to be appointed bishop or to be proposed to be bishop, so sometimes there are denunciations against him, anonymous, but it's in what we've called the Vade Mecum, the companion book now for all the dioceses and for all the bishops and the heads of religious orders, it says there that anonymous denunciations have to be looked at. They're not to be automatically discarded. Right. I think that that brings us to a big question about the uh, appointment of bishops, right? So they want to make sure now that going forward, this isn't able to happen again, that if there are allegations about someone that they're they're able to come to the light to be investigated and that was a topic of conversation at this week's uh, meeting of the USCCB that's the US Conference of Catholic Bishops um on Monday they had a discussion of the McCarrick report and actually one of the bishops uh Bishop Brennan he suggested that when a bishop is up for appointment they should do all of these, you know, the usual asking of other bishops, what is this man like? Is he a good worker? Are there any concerns about him? But he said, what if we also allow for a period of, you know, one or two or three months for the public to learn the name of this person and bring forward any any concerns about them? And I, I thought that was an interesting idea. I don't know if they'll take it, but I think that there is a big question here about, you know, Will there be any changes to, to how bishops are appointed? Well, it, this is a very interesting question, Colleen, because the whole question of who is consulted when 
candidates are being discussed for to be a bishop. Right. We've also heard some people mention that they want like a, a lay review board or something, right? So uh, the question is that the bishop, Brendan, you said, he's proposed that once they have got, let's say, a slate of names or one or two names, then this is made available for the public to discuss whether there is anything against it. Uh, it's a possibility. I, I, I think certainly the whole question of the appointment of bishops has to be looked at again. Also, there is the second question, Colleen, which is that those who give information have a moral obligation to tell the truth and to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And this is what we saw went wrong with the uh, bishops that John Paul II sent to look into the McCarrick allegations, right? Yes, there were four bishops and three of them gave incomplete information, you know, from the report. They had information, but for some reason or other, they felt it was either not compelling or couldn't be proved, etc., and so they set it aside. I, I think it has also sensitized the Vatican, this report. Hmm. What do you mean? Well, it's brought out more powerfully the failure of the investigation or the inadequate steps that were taken to investigate. And to Poland now, where a new documentary uh, allegedly exposing child sexual abuse by members of the Roman Catholic Church is forcing the country's bishops to meet in Warsaw today. A string of uh, recent accusations of child sex abuse by members of the Catholic Church has sent shockwaves through the country, with a recent film about the issue generating a huge amount of debate in the majority Catholic country. Jay, let's shift our view now to the international scale. You know, obviously this report, as we said, had a huge impact on the American church because McCarrick was very much a product of the American church. Um, but it also had a ripple effect around the world. So let's talk first about Poland and what's happened there uh, kind of in the wake of the McCarrick report. Well, already for more than a year, Colleen, perhaps two years, there's been a lot of questions raised also in the media with, with videos and uh, films exposing the cover-up of abuse cases by Polish bishops. It has showed, they have, they, these um, documentaries, films, have shown how victims have been not given a hearing even by, their, by the bishops, not believed. And uh, most recently, on the eve of the publication of the McCarrick Report, John Paul II's secretary, Cardinal Jeevich, was on television in a program where he was being accused of having covered up and where he was also, they had Jason Berry from down your part of the world, Colleen. Right. Jason Berry uh, lives here in New Orleans, and he was actually one of the first reporters to, to ever break the story of clerical sexual abuse down here in Louisiana for the National Catholic Reporter. And that came, gosh, 10 years before the Boston Globe Spotlight team. Yeah. He, he was on this program bringing up the Massiel case because many people see in Rome, they see it, in Poland, they see it, but in Mexico, they see it, and other parts, that there is a kind of a almost mirror image case of how the Massiel case was, was handled or mishandled and how the uh, McCarrick case was mishandled. And Jerry, I, I imagine this is all kind of exacerbated by the McCarrick report, which you know showed some of the the failings of John Paul II, or at least you know his his willingness to believe McCarrick's denials of, of these allegations. Yes, but it wasn't also it wasn't just John Paul II. Mm -hmm. 
John Paul II took the decision, and it's very clear in the prote, he personally took the decision. He wanted to make McCarrick uh, uh, Archbishop of Washington, and when he was able to uh, deal with the objections to that, he appointed him. Now, even more so in the case of Maciel, he was very strong on orthodoxy. John Paul II just liked him. And so now many people are saying, we've had the McCarrick report, now let's have the Maciel report. Right. And actually, uh, later on this week, or maybe next week, we're going to have an interview uh, on Inside the Vatican with Juan Carlos Cruz, who is a, a well-known abuse survivor and, and advocate from Chile. And he's also calling for the Vatican to release its report on Chile, which was put together by uh, Archbishop Shakluna back in what, 2018. So I think that we're going to see a lot of these these types of calls. For sure. Uh, I think in Poland, the president of the Polish bishops has now asked for the Vatican to uh, come in and examine, review, investigate the charges against John Paul II's secretary. Because remember, last week, the evening before or the evening the McCarrick report was published or the day after, there was protests outside his, his apartment in Krakow. Right. And they were saying, come out, and they were using a lot of pretty abusive language for him. But there is a very strong feeling uh, they are blaming him in Poland for being part of cover-up. Now, uh, the president of the Bishops' Conference of Poland has asked the Vatican to uh, please investigate. Right. And that feels like a really big step, Jerry, because I know that we talked about how this report faced internal um, resistance, right? That Francis faced internal resistance uh, around releasing the report, but but went ahead and did it anyway. And I feel like there's been this lingering question of if the people who oppose the report coming out were going to kind of be able to get the Vatican to return to normal after this. And seeing this call from the Polish Bishops' Conference and also from survivors like Juan Carlos makes me think, no, there's there's a new energy here and there's a new motivation for the Vatican to continue this level of transparency. Look, at the February meeting 2019, when Pope Francis invited the presidents of the Catholic bishops' conferences from the different countries to the summit in Rome, which you were at, there were several words there which were key. Accountability, transparency, and then justice for the victims. And I think uh, now with the publication of the report, a precedent has been set. So you can't say it was never done before. If you wish, you know, the horse has left the stable and you can't put him back in. Right. You know, Jerry, I, I know that you and I have talked about this, how legislatively Francis has kind of put into place a, a, a system for greater transparency over the last couple of years, right? With, you know, well, and also transparency and making sure that, that these cases are investigated with his motu proprio vocesis lux mundi, with lifting the pontifical secret, with the vada mecum, right? We've seen all of these different measures on this in the last two years. Um, and I feel like the the remaining question is whether those will be applied well and applied thoroughly. But I think it's also true that, you know, we've got this report that is now kind of showing us, okay, here's what here's what the next step of transparency looks like. And so I think there's a question of, of what that looks like going forward. Well, Francis has created the legal framework, and there are few, if any, loopholes left in it for dealing adequately with the question of abuse. Of course, 
As in every country, you have laws, and the implementation of the law depends on people who are doing it. But uh, now that you've had a public report and that their failures, if there were to be another case of this kind, will come into the public domain is an additional uh, factor in making sure that the whole procedure is done properly and the information given and testimonies given are in fact corresponding to the truth. Let's talk about that question of of laws being applied. You know, it, it probably sounds weird to to people who aren't aren't familiar with the way this usually works, but why why is it even a question? If it's law, why isn't it a given that it would be applied? Look, you have to look at your own country. You have laws, and are they all applied? There are many laws, but the the application of the law depends on the people who have the task to apply the law. And some people bypass the law. Some people with a lot of money get lawyers to make sure that the law doesn't work against their client. So it's the functioning of justice is a major question in, in any country. And here we're talking about that too. As, as you know, the Catholic Church is in almost 200 countries and territories around the world. There are countries, for example, where you, in, in America, you have a lot of canon lawyers, for example. You have a free press. You, you have uh, uh, different kinds of institutions. You have countries who, if they have two canon lawyers in the given diocese, it's a lot. Some countries might have 10. Right. So it's like, it's a resource question. It is a question of human resources, question of economic resources. It's a question of the access of the press. You, you have so, so many variables in different countries. So you say, why isn't it functioning? Well, Rome is trying to, in terms of the abuse question, it's now trying to uh, assist those countries with the least resources by training and helping people. And it's an ongoing process. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's also, as we often raise, this question of culture, right? Because you have to have people taking this seriously and and kind of a culture of taking it seriously Otherwise, these these laws, you know, you can pass as many laws as you want, but they won't go anywhere. Colleen, you've put your finger on the real problem, the culture. You had a clerical culture, which was like a, a boys' club, where each protected the other. And when the Pope speaks against clericalism, this is exactly what he's talking about. He spoke about it in Chile. It's a reality. We see it now in Poland. It's a reality. We see what happened with Maciel in Mexico. It's a reality. This clerical culture where people protect those of their, their own group and uh, defend them, it's a culture. And this is what Pope Francis is trying to break, the clericalism that has protected the predators, the abusers, and that has defied the victims from getting justice. Yeah, and, and Jerry, as you mentioned, you know, I think it's a really powerful combination. This that these calls that we're seeing for you know additional reports like this, this new precedent that's been set, as you said, but combined with that new legal framework that you mentioned, with Vos Estus, with the handbook, with everything else, where you know now it's kind of impossible to go back. Yes, the transparency is part of the of the framework now, and I think uh, 
this is a message of hope for a church which has suffered so much, for people in different countries who have suffered so much, for the victims in the first place. But it, it also is a process of purifying the church, purification. I think that uh, St. Francis of Assisi, he heard Christ saying, go and rebuild my church, repair my church. This is what Francis is doing. All right, Jerry, I appreciate the chance to get to talk to you about this story again. Um, if our listeners want to get up to date on all the responses and the follow-up to the McCarrick Report, you can find all that in our show notes and at americamagazine.org. And you can go back and listen to our deep dive on the McCarrick Report if you want to get up to date on what was contained in that report. Jerry, I will talk to you next week. Thanks. Well, thank you, Colleen. And it's very good always chatting with you. And I uh, hope our listeners are drawing some benefit from our exchanges. That's right. And if you are uh, drawing some benefit from our exchanges, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out about the show. Thanks. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Production assistance from the Jesuit Curia in Rome and from Kevin Christopher Robles at America Media. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also email us your questions and comments at insidethevatican at americamagazine.org. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dudley. We'll see you next time. 